What's happening? How's everybody doing? It's great to see you. Listen, I just want you to know that this is the only service out of the four that got the pink glasses. I forgot about those. So for those of you, like our Casa folks, who've had to endure three of these, the glasses are for you. They'll mix it up a little bit. So welcome to those that are in the room, those that are tuning in online. If you're out in the atrium enjoying the sunlight, basking in it all, that's awesome. My name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here. And you can blame the pastoral search committee for this. So it is great to be together. We're in a series called Mistaken Identity, where we're talking about these identities of God that trip us up. Uh, when we overemphasize one aspect or one element or one, what I would say, one metaphor. And uh, our anchor verse for this series, if you're new, if you're tuning in for the first time, or maybe this is your first time here, and you're thinking, what is going on? This is not my real hair. I'll reveal my real hair in just a moment. You'll be surprised. I did at one point in time have hair this long, though. Could you imagine? I did. The pictures are out there. But we've been exploring this, this question that Jesus asked his followers one, uh, in one of the Gospels. Uh, the Gospel writer, uh, we call it Matthew, has Jesus telling uh, his disciples, talking to him, because people are saying, kind of talking about Jesus and who he is, and maybe he's John the Baptist or another prophet that's come back to life. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And that's really the question, is that how do we as people kind of come to this place and say, not just who is Jesus, but if we come as a matter of faith, believing that in some way, some mystery, that Jesus is the incarnation, the best visible picture of the invisible God, what can that tell us about God? And what should we be thinking? And so we've been looking at these kind of misunderstandings uh, of God. And uh, the first week, we just kind of explored, we do have misunderstandings of God. And we talked about how Mary Magdala uh, expected Jesus to be dead. So when Jesus showed up, she thought it was the gardener. And all of our expectations around God are always grounded in our experiences with others and what other people do with God. So uh, Mary had this expectation, the other people had killed Jesus. And so why else wouldn't he be dead? right? And so that expectation, she missed God. And we have those expectations as well. And so we talked the second week about pizza delivery God and this idea that good stuff happens when people do good things. When people call and put the order in right and you give just the right amount of money and you show up for just the right amount of church, then God's going to bless your life. You're going to be healthy, wealthy. It's all good. And we said, wait a second, when we really explore the life of Jesus, when we center our understanding of the Bible uh, around Jesus and God around Jesus, we see, no, that's not the case, that wealth and poverty, wellness and sickness, these are realities. They're just a part of our world, and we navigate them with God. We don't actually expect or see them as rewards and punishments from God. And we really grounded that in this beautiful metaphor that Jesus gave in John of God as Father, right? Father, such a beautiful beautiful metaphor. And then last week, uh, I talked forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever about a really big subject that we probably need to spend much more time on, is what do we do with the violent images of God? And we, we kind of talked about this with FBI God, the God that's always watching, that's ready to punish, that's one day is just going to come and burn the whole place down. And, uh, and we need to be afraid of that God. And we, we looked at some dangerous kind of theologies that have emerged over the past couple of hundred couple hundred years, that really uh, we have to pause and say, wait a second, if we look at the life of Jesus, is really, is God violent? And we said the problem is a violent vision of God leads to a violent people of God. And we see the exact opposite in Jesus. And so this week we want to pick up uh, our conversation with hippie God. 
Anybody ever consider themselves a hippie in the room? Raise your hand and say, you consider yourself one right now, maybe, right? Uh, the big problem with hippie God spirituality is nothing gets done. Right, let me just, I said that on Easter Sunday morning. I think that's ultimately the biggest problem. But hippie God spirituality is just like, it's grounded in some values. I was thinking about this. I said, okay, if I had to like talk about, if we could get like the, the, the most extreme hippie God spirituality, and these are caricatures, right? If we could get a group of people that really, 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 these are their values, like what would the values be of, of, a, of a hippie God spiritual community? I don't know that you'd ever get a hippie God spiritual community to articulate anything, but let's just say you could, right? Let's say you could. What would their values be like if they had a list of core values? And I came up with five. And I think if you've been around church or if you're like a normal human being, right? And those two are sometimes mutually exclusive. I understand that. But let's just say like these aren't necessarily bad things. These aren't necessarily wrong values. It's just when they become the emphasis at the expense of other things, we, get a, we have a problem. But here's what I think the five values of hippie God spirituality would be, all right? And this is my best hippie God persona, all right? This is what I think it looks like. I think hippie God spirituality value number one is don't worry. And we have Bible verses for all these, by the way. But you say, oh, don't worry. Don't, what are you worried about? God's in control. God's in control. And there's a side of me like, like, what about our world makes you think God is in control of this mess? That's kind of what I, but I, that's a whole other topic. But like, th there's this like, just don't worry about it, man. It's all good. God's got it. God's got this. And, my, and, it, and it manifests in, in uh, really wonderfully sounding sentiments like, man, God's still on the throne. If I heard that one more time during the election season, God's still on the throne no matter who is, I wanted to just poke my eyeballs out, right? Like, God's been on the throne, whatever that means, for, you know, 400 years of oppression of black and brown people in our nation. God's been on the throne when Hitler exterminated millions and millions of Jews. Like, that means nothing to me, the fact that God's on the throne. Like, what does that have to do with all the oppression, all the pain in this world? And that's how when we go to that extreme, right? But it's like, so that's it. Like, just don't worry. Just relax. I think this is one, too, that would be a huge part of like a hippie God's purchase. We just got to expect God to do great things. Like, we just got, God has so much power. He can do whatever God wants. We just got to expect God to do great things. And so we just kind of sit back in our lawn chairs around our campfires with our guitars, sing the right songs, and just hold that God's going to do great things. Another one that I think would be pretty, pretty, pretty strong value would be, we just got to wait on the Lord. Just got to wait on the Lord. Let's just wait on the Lord. We hold, calm down. Getting all anxious, just wait on the Lord. Or we would say, we're just going to kill them with kindness. Kill them with kindness. When we see somebody doing something wrong or oppressive, we're just going to kill them with kindness. Not a bad sentiment, but I don't know what that means. <laughs> I don't know exactly know how to do that. And then this is probably it. This is the one that gets me all the time. And, 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 and it just kills me because it's such a wonderful sentiment, but it is so abused in, in this form of spirituality. And this is it. it it's, it's this one. I just need to pray about it, man. I just need to pray about it. You know, 90% of the time people say that to me. My first instinct, and I hold it back because, you know, I'm a pastor and a people person, but my first instinct is I want to shake them and say, pray about what? Like, what exactly do you need to pray about, right? Like, we're, we're organizing to go do something good for someone, right? We're organizing to go and support a local organization, or we're organizing, like, I just need to pray about Like, no, 
you don't need to pray about it, right? Like CASA, we hear about CASA, this organization. I just need to go pray about it. Like my thought is you don't need to go pray about whether or not you should help a child. What you need to do is think, is this my gift, my skill set? Do I really in my life right now have the time that I need to commit to this, right? But pray about it. Like what, is this the right thing to do, God? Should we help these children? Just going to wait on you, Lord. I'm just expecting you to do great things in their life. I'm not going to worry about it. You see how we back this up and now we have 300 kids that don't have CASA advocates? Right? That's what happens. And here's the reality of hippie God spirituality. Right? Hippie God spirituality basically wants peace, wholeness, fullness in our world, but it doesn't want the work of peacemaking. Right? We want peace. We want this like, just world. We want this image of mercy, and we want this image of, of equity, but we don't want to do the work and the sacrifice. And what that does is, if you think about that first song that we sang today, I think I got a hair in my face. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Uh, you know, that first song is, I'm a child of God. I wish I could have just came out and danced across the stage during that song, because it's kind of a hippie song, you know, and I love it, and it's wonderful. But like, what happens is this spirituality just produces spoiled children of God. <laughs> like, it's just this, I'm going to sit back and let God, my heavenly father, do all the good stuff. Like, provide, you know, dad's going to pay for everything. Dad, mom's going to just, like, we just become these spoiled children. And, and our spirituality is marked by a very me-centered understanding of it. And it produces like country club Christianity, where we build our big buildings and we have our great stuff for our own kids, and we come in and we sing the songs and we get the goosebumps, we maybe cry a tear and we give in the offering and then we just walk out and we go, God's got this. <laughs> and we don't actually like grapple with and wrestle with what does it really mean to be a Christian outside of what we've kind of been told it means in terms of holding beliefs. But maybe it's actually more about behavior. That, that really, in all honesty, and I haven't said this in the other uh, services, but for me, this word Christian has its redemptive value the more and more I think about what it means in my actions. Because when I think of it in terms of what it means I believe, that's always in flux because God's always, I feel like, bringing new revelations into my life, challenging the things that I believe or what I was told. But the idea of Christian, to be like Christ, to be like Jesus, and, and the beauty of that, there's so much power in it. And one thing I learned is that Jesus was active, right? He was active. And, and the reality is like this hippie God spirituality is just very, very passive. Everything happens to me, right? God takes care of everything. My choices really don't matter. God's in control. And, and, and what I would say is that's highly problematic, that it's actually the opposite. No, that isn't the case. We are called into an active an active faith. And it's kind of like when you write, like we have to make this choice between active or passive voice. We have to make a choice as to what type of Christianity, what type of Jesus, what type of life we want to have. Do we want to have an activist life where we're actively engaged in bringing, and I shouldn't say bringing, but living in the kingdom of God ethics, right? Or are we just passive, like willing to let what happens to us happen to us? Now, as I said, these values, like pray about it, don't worry, expect God to, these are all things that we can find a Bible verse for. 
and, and like all of these kind of metaphors gone amok, we can find a Bible verse for it. But I think if we look at the whole corpus of like this scripture, we see again this pushing forward of truth in the midst of our own pain and loss and our own uh, ignorance about God and the universe. And we're always trying, even the biblical writers are always trying to figure out and live faithfully. And so I like to look at Scripture. Every week we do this. We say, I ask this question, well, what wisdom does Scripture offer us? I don't ask what rule does the Bible offer me. I don't ask necessarily what historical truth does the Bible offer me. What can it tell me about science? I ask the question of wisdom. Like, what wisdom can I gain from maybe an exploration of this topic, how people wrestle with it. Is there a great theme? And I think there is this great theme, this thread, all throughout a lot of the writings that we have in what we call the Bible. And it's this. There's two, two kind of themes that I want to pull out for just a few minutes. I promise this is not going to be nearly as long as last week. Some of you are just like breathing much deeper, all right? Here's, here's the first thing that we see in Scripture, this thread that, that goes throughout the Bible, is that God's revelation is peacemaking through divine collaboration, not divine intervention. Does that mean we can't find moments where the biblical writers believe and held deeply that the divine intervened or that the divine emerged, however you want to think about that? The divine broke through kind of the, the veil of what we can see versus what we can't see. Certainly that's there. But the common thread, the consistent thread, is there's always this collaboration, right? We see this right from the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, this beautiful story of creation in the garden, which is not meant to be science in my humble opinion. And so if as soon as I said Genesis 1, you're like, oh, great, now I have to believe in seven days of creation. Like, I don't, I don't think you have to believe that. Some people do. That's fine. I don't think the point of it is to tell us how the world was created. I think the point of it is to tell us why the world was created, why we exist in this, and, and then how to live in it well. So Genesis 1, 28, this this first story of creation that we have, uh, we have that God is creating, right, and speaking into existence, and we have light and darkness, and then we have water and all these things, and it culminates with God creating humanity. So this first account in Genesis is not the creation of Adam and Eve particular, it's the creation of humanity in general. In Genesis 1.28, it says that God blessed them, humanity, and God said to them, be fertile and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and all the living things that crawl on the earth. This is collaboration. I've created, you care for. I've created, you care for. This is a matter of stewardship, right? You don't own this. This is not yours, but I am giving it to you to care for and to exist and function and, and to bring justice into it. Isaiah 6, 8 is a great example of the prophets and the prophetic voice. God always looking for uh, this, this reality, these people that would be willing to speak and work and function towards love and justice. And so Isaiah 6, 8, we have this really beautiful scene where the prophet Isaiah has this crazy vision, like, and it is a bizarro vision. Like, he just has this vision of a throne room and God, and he sees and experiences God in the way in which his mind in antiquity would understand it. That, I think, is the beauty of the divine, that we always meet the divine in terms that we understand. That's a grace given to us. So I don't think we have to believe or hold to the literal understanding of what Isaiah saw, but we can hold to the beauty that we all experience God in ways that we understand. That's universal grace, in my opinion. So Isaiah has this crazy throne room scene, and he hears this voice 
and he believes it's the voice of the Lord, and it says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Talking about a problem with the nation, the injustice that's ruling. Who's going to go? Who will be our representative? And he says, here I am. Send me. That's collaboration, right? That's that. Uh, we should not expect this divine intervention as we just sit back and wait. We should expect an invitation always. Now, Jesus would talk about this concept too, and he would talk about it in terms of abiding in or remaining in him. The Gospel of John, chapter 15, we get this like, great teaching of the heart of Jesus. And Jesus says, remain in me as I remain in you. Now, I actually think that like a disciple hearing this in the first century would be completely confused by that statement. <laughs> like, remain in you? Is that, what are you talking about? But when John is writing this, whoever John is, when John's putting this together, years and years and years after Jesus, years and years and years into understanding what does it mean to live this life being led by the Spirit? What does it mean to live this life being connected to the resurrected Jesus? This would be of wonderful importance this understanding. We remain in Jesus, and Jesus remains in us. And then Jesus says, just as a branch cannot bear fruit unless it stays connected to the vine, so you need to be connected to the vine. So, so neither can you unless you remain in me. You can't produce that fruit. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever remains in me and I in them will bear much fruit, because without me, you can do nothing. The point is, this is a collaborative work. If we're going to bring about the vision of God on this earth, the vision of distributive justice, a vision of mercy, of grace, of nonviolence, where our world is cared for, where there is this beauty, this garden image, right, of everyone flourishing, human flourishing, this happens as we remain in the divine, as we remain connected with the message, the spirit of Jesus. And that produces the fruit. It's collaboration. Jesus, according to Matthew, uh, would, would say to his disciples at the end of his ministry, would say, go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, we don't really use that language of disciples, and this has been used to really do a lot of harm. What Jesus, I believe, was saying in the heartbeat of, of what this message is, is go and share with people this hope. Go and share with people what it means to live a nonviolent life. Go and share with people what it means to give of yourself so that others could grow and find justice. Go and give. Go and share my love. Share mercy. Create people that are filled with mercy. Create people that are filled with forgiveness. This is what I've shown you. So go, go, go and share that with people. And then he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit would have been a perfectly understandable concept for them. Right? I mean, in, in Jesus' day and even beyond, baptism was a very normal experience within faith communities. People would be baptized, go into waters of baptism for all types of things. I mean, I joke around sometimes and I'll say, I think Jesus, if he were to like be standing here at our baptism, sometimes he'd be like, I can't believe you guys are still doing that. <laughs> because it's such a, it, it, it's so foreign to our culture. And we still do it and it's wonderful and there's nothing wrong with doing that. But it, it, that's not the point of the passage. It's not this command, right? It's Let's get people living this way. Let's get people living out what I'm saying. And he says, you do this by teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, all that, everything. And you know what? I mean, it's a long list of two things. Love God and love your neighbor, right? I mean, there'll be a pop quiz after class. That's it. Those two, right? Teach them how to observe these things, what it looks like in their day, in their age, with the, the problems that they're facing, with the, with, with the tension that we all fall into of, who's my neighbor? Hold on a second. 
Like this person who's behaving in a way that I think is wrong, is that really who I'm supposed to love? Yes, it is. And so that's what it means. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded. We, we, we have to learn how to observe loving God and loving our neighbor in our time, in our day, in our context. And here's the collaboration. Behold, I'm with you always. It's a great mystery, but I'm with you always until the end of the age. I'm with you. And so this, this with God, this remaining in Jesus, we call it a life hidden in Christ. Paul would talk about that in his letters. A life hidden hidden in Christ. And so this life hidden in Christ is a life that actively loves, actively loves through justice and mercy work. And I think this is a major thread throughout Scripture. Like we have the prophetic voice, we have the divine breaking through over and over again, the assertion of justice and mercy over law and sacrifice over and over and over again in Scripture. We always subvert it because Law and sacrifice is easier to control people with. Law and sacrifice is easier to decide who's in and who's out. But there is an assertion, you've heard me talk about that last week in that very, very long sermon, assertion of mercy and justice over law and sacrifice. There is no need for law and sacrifice when there's justice and mercy, and that's this active. And we see this, I think, one of the best places in this letter uh, called James. There's a letter that's called the letter of James in the New Testament. And in James chapter 2, this is what the author writes, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says they have faith but don't have works? Can that faith save anybody? Can that faith save them? Now, if you're in here and you've been around church for a while, let me just hit the pause button and just very quickly say this passage has caused all kinds of problems for the church because it uses this word save. And, and at times, the church, Big C Church, uh, has, has taken this word salvation and saved and given it this very narrow definition that somehow it refers to God throwing all the bad people into hell and all the people who've said the prayer, repeat after me, dear Jesus, dear Jesus, Forgive me my sins, forgive me my sins, come into my heart, come right now you get to go to heaven. And we've turned Christianity into that, about this like heaven and hell thing. And so the problem with this is you have other passages where Paul is saying, well, you're not saved by works. That's crazy. It's only the work of Christ. And so I think what we have to do is say, maybe we need to rethink what the word save means. I was just reading this, uh, this book this week that I thought brought a great understanding that really this idea of salvation as we see it in Scripture in its, in its really foundational setting is transformation. That there's a transformation that takes place in our lives, and it's a major theme throughout Scripture. The exodus with Moses, Abraham leaving his father's household and going into something new, that return from exile, death and resurrection of Jesus, the establishment of the church. Like all these things are about transformation. I'm being saved from a way of thinking that holds me captive, from a way of seeing the world that holds me captive right? A way of living that produces pain and hell on earth. But I experience a salvation and a grace that transforms my life so that I no longer think the way I did. That old way of thinking goes away. It's like, and this is the beauty of the imagery of baptism, right? I'm, I'm come out of those waters of baptism with an, uh, like honoring this new way of seeing the world as Jesus saw the world. And so the point I think this thing is like, how could, how could a faith system that doesn't produce any kind of action transform you because you can't think your way into new ways of 
believing, and you have to act your way into new ways of believing. Like, it's just, it's just how it works. You have to meet relationships. I was having this conversation um, yesterday, and, uh, and, and I, I, I mean, I just say this because I think it's important that when I'm trying to engage now with understanding the, what's happening in our world with the evolution of gender and the way we talk about gender, I can read all the articles I want to about non-binary, non-gender conforming personhood, and that's wonderful. But what I really need is a non-binary person in my life. I need to love that person, and I need to understand that person. I need to, to grapple with what do their pronouns mean for them, and what is the, how do they see the world? And in that, I'm transformed. That's a grace. See, it, like if, if my faith that says every person is of value doesn't push me to that action, then how am I being transformed? It's always in that hard work that's disorienting. And so I had this great, very simple example that James gives is as if a brother or sister has nothing to wear and has no food for the day, and one of you says to them, like imagine me in my hippie Jesus wig, go in peace, keep warm, eat well, I'll pray for you, expect God to do great things, don't worry, but you don't actually do anything, give them the necessities of the body, what good is it? What good is this faith? What good is this belief? What good is your worship singing? What good is your going to church? What good is a community of faith that doesn't actually meet needs, doesn't actually get active? And he gives this great picture. He says, so also faith of itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And a few verses later, finishes this section that says, for just as a body, a physical body, without a spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And this is the very heartbeat, I think, of Jesus and his teachings. When we see the parable of the sheep and the goats, there's the separation, this wonderful parable that takes place that is just simply meant to help us understand what matters, what has eternal significance, what matters in this world is not casting out demons, uh, performing miracles, all these flashy things. What really matters is the simplicity of giving food to the hungry, clothing to the naked, shelter to those that are homeless, right? I mean, visiting the sick, visiting the prisoner, like those tangible acts of mercy and justice. That's what matters. That's where God is found. That's where God is found. The parable of the Good Samaritan, a hippie rewriting of that parable would be, one day a man got beat up, three people walked by, ignored him, one person came by and said, oh, I should pray for this person. Went to church, prayed for him, sang a bunch of songs about how God could save the world, gave in the offering, and then prayed that God would provide somebody to help that man that they saw on the side of the road. Like that would be hippie God's spiritual way, but that's not the parable. The parable is this person sees the man and stops their life, stops his life, and he says, I've got to help. And he gives of himself. He sacrifices his own money, his time, carries him, takes him, says, I'll pay all the bills. Like it's this, that's the idea. It's not, well, I'll just sit back and let my religion or my church or my whatever just pray that God will do great things. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, the program of God. This is peacemaking. This is what it really means to follow Jesus. It's just, it's latent with all of this. Blessed are the merciful, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. Right? I, you've heard it said, but I tell you, it's all about taking these things to the next level. Even Jesus' nonviolent resistance to Rome and religion, like these actions that he did that we don't necessarily see explicitly, but when we study them in their historical context, his riding in on a donkey, 
an absolute act of nonviolent resistance to the violence of Rome. Even the title Son of God that Jesus gets is an act of resistance to Rome because the Caesars of Rome were called Son of God, very God of very God. They were, they were born of a virgin. Like, and so those titles to Jesus were a very, in themselves, an act of resistance to the violent thinking of victory through power. Victory, you know, peace through victory really is what it was. So as we think about this, as we get the big picture of this thread, what I don't want us to miss is this. And, and here's kind of the point of the last 20 minutes. Has it been 20 minutes? Maybe even longer. Okay, so here it is really quickly. And I'm totally stealing this. Love is the spirit of justice, and justice is the body of love, right? If faith without works is like a corpse without a spirit, then this is what we have, right? You have these two things together. And I've totally stolen this from a guy named John Dominic Crossan who wrote a book called God and Empire Then and Now. And in that book, this is what he says. My proposal is that justice and love are a dialectic. They're in relationship to one another like two sides of a coin. You can distinguish them, but you can't separate them. You can't separate a coin. He says, we think of ourselves as composed of body and soul, flesh and spirit. And when they are separated, we have a physical corpse. That's what James says, right? Similarly, with distributive justice. Now, distributive justice means the, the equal distribution of God's creation to all of humanity. That is the vision of Scripture, right? That what is God's is distributed equally for all of us to have dominion over. That's where justice begins. So distributive justice and communal love, right? These two things are two sides of the same coin. He says, justice is the body of love, and love is the soul of justice. Justice is the flesh of love. Love is the spirit of justice. He, when they're separated, we have a moral corpse. When they're separated, we have a moral corpse. And then listen to this. This is so powerful. Justice without love is brutality. And if you think about the way in which a country, a nation, a community treats those that are deserving of punishment within their criminal justice systems, oftentimes it's absolutely brutal because it's not grounded in love. But this, the other side of it is true as well. Love without justice is banality. It's just sentiment. It's just a good thought. It can't actually do anything. So we take all of this and we think about tomorrow, right? Because your Monday is far more important than my Sunday, <laughs> I spend a lot of my time these days, and that's my career, it's like Sunday. You come, you gather, you listen, you tune in, or Thursday. But it's really about your Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and how we take this hope into our world. So here's the question. What can you say yes to? What collaborative work of justice and mercy can you say yes to in your everyday normal life? I was talking to somebody today who she came up and she said that her husband is caring for his parents, both at the end of life. And, and she got it. She said, he is so being Jesus to his 96-year-old dad who has dementia. He washed him and he cut his hair this week. And I said, yes, that's it. That's it right there. That's the collaborative work of mercy with God. It's, it's beautiful. So what in your life could you say yes to? In your everyday normal life, where God has you, where love takes you in the midst of the week, wherever you work, Wherever your vocation is, what, what, and, and I, I say vocation and work not in terms of where you get a paycheck, but where you're investing your talents and your time throughout the week. Some of you maybe have heard the story of Casa. What a great space to say yes to. You say, I've got those gifts, talents, I've got that heart. I've got two hours a week that I could do this. So you say yes. 
And once you and I start to say yes, I think then we can expect God's power to work through us. We ought to bring with our yes a belief that love is a powerful agent in this world, sustaining and holding all things together, and we're now stepping into that flow, and we're not trying to redirect this river of God's power towards me, but I'm seeing God at work, and then I step in that river. You can't tell me that the work of Casa is not the work of Jesus in this world, and I just don't think Jesus and God are so petty they care who gets the credit. (laughs) Right? I mean, but when you say, I, we need to step in and advocate for children, that is, that is 100% the work of God. And so we can like try and redirect that, into our, or we can just step into it and go, here I am. And that's stepping into it. When we start to actually get into that flow, when we start to say yes, we will get weary. I mean, we didn't really talk about this because when you're kind of wanting to people explore something like CASA, we're just going to tell you all the beautiful things you get to do. But we could probably sit and have a conversation about some of the really challenging parts of this work, that there are days that you go, what am I doing? Is it even worth it? The pain and the hurt and the loss. And so that's where I think we learn to say, I need to pray about it. Because I don't think prayer is about, well, how do I get God to do X, Y, and Z and intervene? I think it's about how do I get myself back into that flow and allow the power of God, which is sustaining the whole world to be flowing through me. And, and how do I do that? How, and prayer is this moment where I say, okay, I've got to get my Jesus eyes on, and I've got to have my strength renewed. So then we wait on the Lord, and we recognize that the earth is filled with the glory of God, and I want to find myself living in. And when I start to get out of that because I'm getting overwhelmed and I start to go into my privilege and say, well, I don't need to help these kids. I got my own problems and blah, blah, blah. Oh, I got to pray. And that brings me back to this space of living in this divine flow of love, which is the Trinity, this constant outpouring. And this moves us closer and closer to God's vision of the world because it releases universal love. And universal love transforms the world. And that is the love of God that says no matter who you are, no matter where you are, I have, I have in Jesus shown this is the way that I have. Like Jesus said, come to me all who are weary. John describes the work of Jesus as for God so loved the world, all of us. It's not our little dome of me. It's not even our dome of Christianity, us. It's the cosmic. It's, uh, it's we. It's the world. It's all of creation that falls into and under the care and the love of God. The rain falls on the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous. So as we wrap up, we got a song for you today to just kind of encourage us that this is the kind of people we want to be. And and as we kind of finish with this song, the question every week is, what is God inviting you into? What is love asking of you? What is love pouring into your life? Maybe love isn't asking anything of you. Maybe love is just saying, you need to experience love, and you need to know that you're whole, and you need to know what is true and has always been true about you, and you're hearing it, that you are a child of God, and there's nothing you could do to make you a child of God, and there's nothing you could do that could make you not a child of God. Faith is the ability to believe that and let it transform your life. Like That's salvation, in my opinion, this trueness. So here's what I would hope we all are sensing or are open to, to looking for those opportunities to use our time, our talent, and our treasure for justice and mercy in our everyday life. You don't need to go start a nonprofit. You don't. There's a great one, CASA. (laughs) You don't need to go start anything. Just how do I say yes to what's around me? How do I say yes to what's around me? Okay, so stand up. We're going to stand up. We're going to finish standing today. Stretch your legs just a little bit. 
This song is wonderful. We're going to be singing this song more because this is a song that's a prayer and a statement and an affirmation of who we want to be, that we want to be more like Jesus, less like me, that we want to look more like mercy, more like goodness, more like grace in this world. But it also says, but boy, do I struggle to do that sometimes. Boy, is it really hard. Boy, do I fail. And that's why we believe in the power of forgiveness. Because when we fail, we know we are forgiven and we come and we find that restorative work and healing that takes place through a God that says, I love everybody. I love everybody. Let's transform the world together. Let's transform the world together. So enjoy this song and I'll be back out to give you a blessing and get you out of here.